0: Welcome to The Week Ahead in Russia, RFERL's weekly podcast about significant developments and upcoming events in Moscow and beyond. I'm Mike Eckel, filling in for the regular host, Steve Gutterman. My guest today is Sergei Radchenko, a Cold War historian and a professor of international relations at Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies. He's also a native of one of my favorite places in Russia, Sakhalin. Draft you, Sergei. Welcome.
1: Oh, well, thank you for having me, Mike. Glad to join.
0: So we are in the second year of what is now Europe's largest land war since World War II. That is, of course, Russia's invasion of Ukraine. There is no indication whatsoever that President Putin is at all dissuaded by the stunning losses that Russia has reportedly suffered. Uh, Upwards of 200,000 killed and wounded, according to Western estimates. Ukraine, for its part, is undaunted, bravely holding its own, bolstered by Western weaponry and, in some cases, recovering territory. So at this point in time, there really is no end in sight whatsoever. Uh, It's been described as a war of attrition. Uh, There was another metaphor that was floated, I believe, by Laurie Friedman at King's College in London. Uh, He described it as two boxers going 20 plus rounds on the ring slugging it out at each other with neither having the intention of throwing in the towel. Professor Radchenko has an idea about where we might be headed or could be headed, and he did tell that idea in an opinion piece in the New York Times, published on the anniversary of the invasion. Professor Radchenko, tell us about your idea. Tell us about the parallels with the Korean armistice.
1: Well, this is as much as historians can do. Talk about parallels. Uh, people like to talk about historical parallels. You know, people draw parallels to the First World War, for example, or the Second World War. Uh, neither of these are satisfying to, to me, in my opinion. But the Korean War does offer some interesting, valuable lessons. Um, this is a war that uh, uh raged uh, beginning from well, beginning in June 1950, uh, by the spring of 1951, things started to get bogged down there for, for both sides. First, you know first obviously the first stage the Koreans, North Koreans across uh, the 38th parallel and pushed south. Uh, then there was the American intervention, the Incheon landing, the Americans then crossed over and pushed north, then the Chinese came in and pushed south. Uh, But eventually, by the summer, by late spring, by the summer of 1951, the front lines more or less stabilized, and neither side really could go on for much longer. And yet, uh, although neither side could really go on, they still went on for another two years, although the front lines didn't really shift. And then, of course, in July 1953... The uh, arms disagreement was concluded. What I argued in my New York Times piece is that this was not the worst scenario, i.e. Uh, the war kind of ended. There was no more fighting. And it seemed like a temporary solution, but it lasted. It lasted for decades and decades. And in the meantime, South Korea was built up. It built itself up economically, becoming a really you know, original power. And of course, now North Korea can no longer really threatened it except by rattling its nuclear missiles. Um, So that is that is perhaps not the worst kind of scenario that could potentially play out uh, in in this conflict uh, between Russia and Ukraine. Now of course uh, this is simply a historical analogy and we should be very careful because in many ways the two situations are still very different. Uh, But that is at least, you know, that kind of comparison is what I tried to do in that uh, opinion piece for the New York Times.
0: Would you share the opinion
1: uh, that the battlefield has sort of evolved into
0: a war of attrition at this point or two boxers in a ring slugging it out at each other? Uh, What's your take?
1: Well, uh, i I would you know, I would generally endorse anything that Laurie Friedman says, right? <laughs> So I would be very happy. I would be very happy there. But you know, the, the situation with the live war is that we don't know how things will play out. So saying, Oh you know, this war has come to a virtual you know, phase of attrition and nothing is going to happen. And then two weeks later, to see a major offensive or counteroffensive and be disproven is not something that historians really should be doing, frankly. Um, what I'm saying here is that we've had a war for about a year. The Russians obviously had their great claims on Ukraine. Putin wanted to. Uh, conquer it in a very short period of time. He obviously was not able to do so. Then last fall, we had a a major Ukrainian counteroffensive where the Ukrainians seemed to be recapturing territory and the Russians were just folding, although near it was more of an organized hold. So that was already an indicator of things to come. And so what we've seen in recent weeks is, of course, fighting around places like Bakhmut, uh, which has uh, uh, has acquired a character of almost attritional attritional warfare, but that does not indicate necessarily that this is how things will continue. What I'm saying is that the war aims are not ironclad. People say that Putin will not be ever dissuaded from ever you know, capturing all of Ukraine. If he's not stopped, then that's probably right. But if he doesn't have the capability of doing this, if he is not able to do it, then he will have to recognise the reality that uh, the war has come to a new phase and perhaps there's scope there to disengage somehow or to bring it to an end and i think the same will probably be true for ukrainians although nobody doubts their resolve and their willingness to take the war all the way to crimea all the way to donbass but the reality is that maybe it may be just simply too difficult uh, because they, the Russians have reinforced their positions, theirs have really dug themselves in. Will they be able to break through? Very difficult to say at this point. If they're not able to break through, then we are going to be in a situation where uh, a potential ceasefire uh, may be, may may be in the cards.
0: So the other uh, factor or player uh, in this discussion, of course, is the patience of uh, Western capitals. That is, uh, places like Washington, London, Berlin, where perhaps patience uh, is growing thin or wearing thin uh, as to the conduct of the war. There's been a raft of polling out of the United States in recent weeks showing that Americans still largely support Ukraine and they support sending weapons, But that support has waned over the past six to nine months. What's your read of the situation as far as the building Western pressure that might be building on uh, President Volodymyr Zelensky to perhaps consider a a Korean-type
1: armistice? Well, uh, you know, as I see it from my perch, there is still considerable resolve, uh, bipartisan consensus, certainly in the United States, with regard to continuation of Western help towards uh, Western help for Ukraine, and uh, uh, the same I think we find across Western Europe and certainly in uh, in Eastern Europe, with the exception of Hungary, of course. Um, but. Uh, 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 you know, and, and this will continue for as long as as long as the war does not widen and NATO does not actually have to send forces into Ukraine. That's obviously scenario that uh, President Biden has been very keen to to avoid, and rightly so. So, so generally speaking, you might say that the West is paying a relatively modest price, and so it's not. Unreasonable to expect that the support for Ukraine will continue for reasons of, well, Ukraine is fighting an existential conflict. A lot of people understand it in the West, and this is a uh, cross-party, a non-ideological commitment, I think. Uh, But that is not what what actually fundamentally will decide whether or not this is a Korean-type conflict. What will decide this is whether, despite support that the West has on on offer that is, you know, that it's providing to Ukraine, Um, whether Ukraine will have the ability to push the Russians all the way out from the territory that Russia has occupied since 2014 And whether the Russians, for their part, have the capability and the willingness to go on. And and again, I stress the capability even more than the willingness. Clearly, there is the willingness on the part of Putin, you know. But will he have the capability to push back and at least even capture the territories that he has formally annexed? At the moment, it's very difficult to say what happens then if they do not achieve those goals, either the Russians or the, the Ukrainians, as a result of spring and potentially summer offensive. Well, nobody can tell. What I'm arguing is that a frozen conflict at this point is not necessarily the worst case scenario. It actually may be uh, the better case scenario.
0: That leads us to the question of the frozen conflict. Um you, you write in your piece, uh, quote, a frozen conflict is better than either an outright defeat or an exhausting war of attrition, close quote. Uh, of course, close watchers of the former Soviet space know well that the term frozen conflict refers to these unresolved territorial disputes, which are basically hangovers from Soviet mapmaking, uh, places that are frozen between war and peace. Uh, the best examples, of course, are South Ossetia and Abkhazia and Georgia, Transnistria in Moldova. Um, in these frozen conflicts, th- these are scenarios that have, at least in the past, worked to the benefit of Moscow. Uh, Moscow wants to have these frozen conflicts. It provides leverage for Moscow over these over these uh, these places. So. To counter your argument, wouldn't in a, a Ukrainian frozen conflict scenario be wholly disadvantaged? Is it is advantageous outcome for Keith?
1: Well, it depends on on what the kind of disadvantages that we're talking about. Again, you know, if the if the alternative is a exhausting a, 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 you know a exhausting war of attrition that is extremely uh, expensive for Ukraine in terms of the loss of life and 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 in terms of you know the uh, the, uh, the uh, prospects for economic reconstruction. So, lack of prospects of economic, for economic reconstructions while the conflict goes on, then perhaps the calculation of cost and benefit changes there. Now, I understand that the Russians, of course, have been able to impose those frozen conflicts conflict along their periphery. And some people say, well, you know, they then can unfreeze them at, later, at a, later, a later period. Uh, and, and that is also true, although we have to remember that Putin is now 70 years old, so his ability for any further misadventures perhaps will not be as high as, as in the past. Um, but what I don't agree with is this argument that I encounter a lot, and that is the argument about, uh, uh, about frozen conflict actually being costly in terms of lives or more costly uh, uh, than an out, you know, an outright war. I don't see this at all. In fact, in the run-up to 2022, as we know, uh, the uh, deaths in Ukraine itself were or in that, along that line of conflict in Donbass, were brought to a relatively low number, number, not in, you know, not in single digits, but in double digits. Uh, And that is certainly not comparable to the kind of death and destruction that followed this conflict being unfrozen when Russia actually invaded. And of course, that death and destruction continues. You look at places like Bakhmut, Mariupol, you know, many of those places that suffered from this war, there's nothing left. So in those, con- you know, in those uh, in that context, talking about saving human lives, you know, frozen conflict is actually probably much preferable, much more preferable, certainly to the available alternatives. Now, will this give Russia leverage over Ukraine? Uh, possibly. On the other hand, with increasing and long lasting a Western commitment, something that we have not had post-2014, um, uh, Ukraine will be in a better position to resist this leverage, to resist Russia's encroachment, and to, uh, to, to rebuild itself as a stronger and more prosperous, prosperous nations. And that is where I again go back to this example of South Korea. South Korea uh, was, of course, you know, Korea the Korean Peninsula was divided as a result of 1953. Uh, but then in the decades that followed, the South Koreans were able to get themselves together and build a prosperous, successful economy that rivals the uh, best economies in the world. And is also democratic, of course, not immediately; It wasn't immediately democratic, but eventually became democratic in the 1980s. And that also, I think, offers lessons for this current conflict in Ukraine um but uh, yeah but that's you know that's that that's that's uh, uh an opinion that I know a lot of people will disagree with
0: okay so let's take a few questions from listeners in the time we have remaining uh again a reminder you can raise your hand by hitting the button on Twitter spaces to request to speak uh you can also direct message us or you could post your question as a reply to the tweet twinned, uh, pinned in this Twitter space the floor is open. Well, while we're waiting for people to chime in, uh, let me jump in with a kind of question that riffs on your uh, your observation about Seoul being becoming this glittering, you know, twenty first century modern economy. There's long been talk about how Ukraine's the way that Moscow, the Kremlin, sees Ukraine is is sort of this uh, this 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 parallel uh nation uh, of this parallel development and 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 people have have made the observation that if ukraine were to somehow become this this thriving democratic you know relatively uh, corruption free uh nation that's been integrated into european union or or never mind nato this would be a, a more dangerous uh, scenario for the Kremlin, because it would show uh, essentially an alternative model of development than what russia has uh, has been undergoing uh, for the for since the
1: Soviet collapse. Talk to me a little bit about, about about that scenario so So a lot of people have this this view that Putin invaded Ukraine because he was afraid that Ukraine was turning into this prosperous democracy i don 't buy it for a second uh there's no doubt in my mind that putin invaded ukraine partly because he thought that ukraine was actually uh a deeply divided society that was basically uh uh nothing short of a failed state and that opinion was something that a, a lot of people in, in moscow shared i think at that time though not everybody would uh, uh back putin uh, or actually most people would, would would not back his his adventure in ukraine in in on in those precise terms so it's not it's not the supposed democratic strength of ukraine that triggered putin but actually it's the weakness of ukraine or assumed weakness of ukraine that attracted him and that highlighted that possibility for russian you know recapture of ukraine now imagine a different situation if ukraine is integrated with the West. If it is a member of the European Union, it is a member of NATO. Down the road, uh, it is it, it has robust uh, institutions um, that, of course, will serve as a as a deterrent for for Russia or for anybody else. You know, this will show that that Ukraine uh, is resilient, is robust, and uh, and and people like Putin will have to think twice. Uh, Moreover, I think in this scenario, Ukraine will potentially be an example for Russia to follow because a lot of Russians, you know, a lot of Russians in the in the in the potential possible opposition, uh, a lot of Russian in the political establishment do look to Ukraine and do wonder how this experiment will play out down the road. And if Ukraine is successful, that it is something that Russia can also learn from.
0: So again, uh, we're happy to take a few questions from listeners in the in the little time we have remaining. Uh, please raise your hand by hitting the button on Twitter spaces to request to speak. You can also direct message us or post your question as a reply to the tweet pinned in this Twitter space. Of course, when we talk about the invasion and we talk about the war in Ukraine, it's always helpful to remind people uh, that, you know, the war technically started in 2014. Um, in the in the in the in the aftermath of the Maidan protests, uh, we had the insurgency uprising start in the Donbass, and then of course the seizure of, of of Crimea. And 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 I like to recall how what led to the protests, the Maidan protests, of course, were the discussions about. Uh, this partnership agreement, this roadmap for Ukraine joining the EU, um, which was spurned by then President Yanukovych, and that sparked the protests, and the rest is history. So, you know, some people will draw the conclusion that, like, well, if that's what precipitated the this whole road to uh, last year's invasion, then again, this is a threat. Russia viewed Ukraine's integration with the European Union as a as a threat, and uh, you know, and that and that led the groundwork to where we are today.
1: Well, sure. I I, I mean, when we look at. at uh, reasons for Putin's invasion of Ukraine I stick to multi causality I don't I don't think that any one uh, one reason explains it all clearly uh, he was concerned about Ukraine's potential integration with uh, with the European geopolitical space and that what in many ways started the whole affair back in uh, 2013 2014 as we well remember you know NATO is that a concern well he keeps saying that this is a concern should we just say that this is propaganda should we just say oh the russians are just you know trying to explain away their brutal imperialism by, by citing some fake concerns about nato i wouldn't say so you know we'll look at how they approach this question their internal discourses and their uh kind of consistent conversations about nato going back to certainly to 2007 at least and i think it's hard to ignore that this is a, a real issue for uh putin is you know is there another Issue there with with Russian imperialism and this idea of restoring Great Russia and being Peter the Great or being uh, Catherine the Great or something like that. Certainly, there's probably something to this as well. So I would say when we look into the reasons for Putin's uh, invasion, we need to be mindful. And here again, I think historical thinking helps us a great deal. We need to be mindful of multiple overlapping causes that actually contribute to people committing this kind of acts um it's always like that historically rarely do we have situations where uh where people act uh out of one overwhelming concern there's always some kind of combination you know you look at we've been talking about korea you look at for example the the reasons for uh, uh, Stalin's support for the North Korean invasion of South Korea. Well, that was caused by it was a you know, number of considerations there that we're still trying to figure out. The Chinese why they joined the war, also multiple causes. Nothing, you know, you cannot say, well, here's one cause, and that explains everything. And I think thinking in those terms about Putin's invasion of Ukraine will also prevent us from slipping into this propagandistic lines about, you know, uh, 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 sort of one-liners about, well, this is what explains the invasion nothing else. I think we should, uh, we should we should keep away from this kind of explanation.
0: We do have one question from a listener uh, and we will go to Mr. Issan Efrini. Uh, go ahead. The line is open.
2: Hey, good morning. Uh, thank you for Radio Free Europe uh, and also Ultra, uh, Turkey, Mr. Turkey. Uh So as uh, my kids are half Ukrainian so I'm very of this topic, and thank you for this great topic. So my question is uh, what Mr. Sergisi uh, uh, the role of China, of the indirect uh, Chinese role uh, to fuel this war uh, in order uh, to uh, like uh, to let the threat of the Western power uh, in Asia, uh, as we saw when President Obama said in, in, his, first, in his first inauguration, uh, if you remember, uh, he uh, said, we're going to focus on uh, Asia. And uh, that's really what happened. And then uh, President Biden uh, came and continued with his policy. So uh, what the role of China uh, my other question will be, uh, like, the Eastern Europe uh, learn from their, uh, like, uh, history uh, during the Soviet invasion and they, when they hijacked the all Eastern European con- countries. What will you see and awake of uh, Eastern European country and be like a manpower also in the field? Thank you. Right. Uh, thank you for your question, sir. Uh, so as
0: I understand it, there are two questions. One was, I guess, the role of China uh, in the Ukraine conflict. Uh, the second being, I guess, the, the, the role of uh, Eastern Europe and how the Eastern European nations, former Soviet Warsaw Pact
1: nations, are, are, are involved mm. in this. Uh,
0: China, w- what do you think about that? Well-
1: yeah, I mean there, there, there are different takes on China. You know, some people, some, some go as far as to say, well, this is a war between China and the West. You know, proxy war where Russia and Ukraine, Russia and Ukraine are proxy powers. You know, I don't buy that. I, I see, uh, China uh, being caught a little bit. Um, Off guard by this whole situation, they were not told it was coming. Um, They they did not think it was going to come, and then it broke out and Russia invaded. And the Chinese were put between it, uh, well, in a difficult position. On the one hand, they want to help their quasi ally. Uh, There is something like a sign of Russian alignment that we can talk about. On the other hand, China also has its economic interests, and it also has reasonably. Uh, the general interest in not having in not seeing this conflict escalate beyond manageable uh, manageable um, uh, limits. So the Chinese have been, uh, on the one hand, calling for peace. They recently issued a, a quote-unquote peace plan. Uh, in order to try to settle this conflict. But it's not a real genuine effort, frankly. I mean, I think they understand that they would not achieve anything when neither the Russians nor the Ukrainians are actually about to come to the negotiation table. But for them, it's, it's a way to say, well, look, we're taking a position of moral superiority, moral authority here. We are for ending this war. But also remember, we're against NATO and their hegemonic and American hegemonic policies that clearly contribute to this conflict. So so that is what their position has been. Now, in recent weeks, we have been uh, certainly following with great interest the story that potentially China uh, may be on the verge of providing lethal aid to Russia. Uh, uh, Anthony Blinken has made warnings about this. in previously, I mean, this has been a long story that goes back to the spring of last year when first uh, Jake Sullivan uh, made, uh, issued similar warnings to um, Yang Chur in Rome when they met there. So what can I say here? You know, it's very difficult to say if the Chinese were to start providing lethal aid were in the form of drones or ammunition or something else, that would certainly be a game changer. Would the Chinese go for something like that? Hard to say they are very careful players they do not want to see Russia defeated. Uh, on the other hand they also do not want to see their economic interests suffer uh, so they are playing a little bit you know they're playing both sides but certainly they towards Russia they have something like benign neutrality more help in Russia than anything else but certainly they're not about to throw Putin under the bus that's that's clear to me now as for Central and Eastern Europe, uh what what can we say about this you know central eastern europe has been uh has been telling since the conflict broke out they have been saying you know look you have not listened to us we have been telling you all along that those russians are hideous imperialists and if they're not stopped that they will take over first uh, the neighboring countries and then they will push further and further take the baltics and if they're not stopped they'll take over the world so, uh, you know, I'm exaggerating slightly the, the rhetoric here. But I think for Central and Eastern Europe, this is... And, of course, we have to keep in mind that Hungary is not part of that club, right? Uh, Orban has been having a very difficult, uh, d- different kind of approach to this whole conflict. But generally speaking, for Central and Eastern Europe, this is a matter of security. They are genuinely worried about where the Russians are taking this. Uh, they are uh, frontline, figuratively speaking. Um, and 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 they have been uh, rightly alarmist about about Putin's intentions. So I do not blame let's the Polish and the Balts for taking a hard line on, uh, on on the Russians and for complaining when the likes of the Germans and the French say, "Well, you know, we actually actually we're trying to sort it out and we should not take it to the boiling point with the Russian." The russians and so on and so forth one just little point here i think for central and eastern europe um uh this war has has been a point where they have um uh they, i wouldn't i, I don't want to say they used it for asserting their identity but it certainly has contributed to uh, a kind of formation of Identity in Central and Eastern Europe as almost leaders of the European space is taking the lead on European security matters uh, before. Uh, the war, not many people actually were listening to the opinions of you know people in Warsaw or in, in Riga or in Tallinn or in Vilnius. And today they are able to direct the general narrative. They are able to direct the discourse in the desired direction. They have become the leaders of opinion in Europe in many ways. And maybe the Germans and the French are not too happy about it, but I think the, the realities on the ground are uh, playing out in, 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 in that sort of direction and of course let's not forget the Czechs who have also
0: been very vocal and uh, oh, outright absolutely front as far as support <laughs> sending weaponry equipment moral support uh, and we just have a new uh, newly elected president here in the Czech Republic uh, who has been very um, vocal in his support uh, of Ukraine so uh,
1: to your point I um, it's definitely. Well, and, and, and for them, you know, history matters, right? History matters. For the Czechs, it's 68 all over again. Well, I don't know what the Hungarians are thinking of. I mean, they did have 56. But... <laughs> <laughs> Never mind. Never
0: mind. Uh, on that note, uh, let's then call it a wrap then for this podcast. Sergei, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Once again, I've been speaking with uh, Sergei Rajenko, a Cold War historian and professor at the Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies. I'm Mike Eckel, filling in for Steve Guterman, who will be back next week. One last reminder, this live conversation is being published as a podcast. You can download it and subscribe to uh, current and past podcasts. Uh, on Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Thanks everyone for joining us.